Welcome to the second reading podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Very happy to be joined by Josh Blank, research director of the Texas Politics Project today. How are we, Josh? Doing pretty all right. You look like, you know, you're staying fairly cool for a guy in long pants. Well, it's barely hot today, right? Yeah, it's going to be hotter. I don't know. I, I feel like I've just given up on long pants for a while. Uh, um, you know, we'll see how long that lasts. If you're one of the people I have a speaking engagement for, I am wearing long pants to speaking engagements. So. I'm wearing sandals. Yeah, so. You are wearing sandals. I, I will, <laughs> so my feet are- Maybe I can wear a suit and sandals to my next- No, I don't think you can do that. <laughs> Yeah, my feet are pretty large. You know, you you know, it doesn't get they it's don't get they don't get lost in the cuffs or anything. It's a lot of foot exposure. <laughs> right, a lot of foot exposure. Um, you know, while there are things going on, and and kind of a lot once I stopped to think about it and started, you know, realizing what was out there, it does certainly feel like on the ground in Texas, it's sort of the dog days of summer. You know, the relentless heat here in central Texas yeah. combined with the realization, as we were just talking before we came on, that, you know, the end of the summer on the school calendar anyway, if not the weather, is very much within sight. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, we've kind of we've it's sort of been a running joke this summer about like, you know, whether it's been quiet or not from week to week, you know, yeah. and it's, and in some ways it almost it feels, it uh, you know, it almost feels quiet, but only relative to, you know, the fever pitch of, of everything else that has been going on kind of perpetually, right? right? So, yeah. so it does feel a little quiet this week, but it's not because nothing's going on. It's just because like, you know, it's a very little like of, you know, sort of that's blown everything up is going on. Yeah, I, I think I think that's fair. So, you know, we'll get to a Texas, our usual Texas-centric discussion for the week. But as we record this on Wednesday morning, there's lots of discussion of Tuesday's primaries. Right in several states, obviously not in Texas, but in several states. I mean, I I think probably the headline this morning is in Kansas, and that was not a primary election. Um, And and in fact, in Kansas, there weren't any competitive primary elections in a predominantly Republican state, which is part of what's interesting here. Um, But there was a lot of anticipation over the results of a referendum that would have allowed the Republican-led state legislature to further restrict abortion. And there's a lot of state-level history I won't go into that kind of led up to this. That in fact, this got on the ballot before the Dobbs decision, probably anticipating some, but also anticipating some things that were going on in state certain, politics. Well, there's a certain Me Too going on. I mean, it's, right. a lot of other states were moving ahead, you know, sort of enacting further restrictions. Dobbs are, you know, in consideration of Dobbs are otherwise, right? right. There's certainly a, a Me Tooism going along among conservative states. Yeah, the outcome there was was very interesting and is sort of leading much of the news, the political news uh, this morning and, and last night. With 98% of the vote in, 59% said no to the amendment that would have, you know, encouraged more abortion, uh, restrictions on abortion. Only 41% voted yes. And what this, you know, was going to do was, gonna, was sort of clarifying that the state constitution does not protect the right to an abortion. And remember, uh, you know, Kansas is a very Republican state. It's a conservative place, right? Yeah. And we, I mean, you know, we, we talk about, you know, Texas all the time. Kansas is 
Yeah. You know, pretty red. Yeah. Very, very red. You know, and, and this is an election with pretty high turnout in the populous counties. And so, you know, I think it's being taken, we can talk about, well, what do you think? Being well, taken as a leading indicator of abortion politics. I mean, I, you know, one of the takes I think is that, you know, this has been more of a mobilization, Is mm-hmm. appears to be more of a, a better mobilization issue for Democrats than Republicans. That, I, you know, and I think that's not really news, but there were some people trying to say that, Republican, the Republican base would be energized by this, by the Dobbs decision, see it as a success, go out, do more, you know, feel energized. You know, we talk all the time in here. It's like our weekly, you know, reminder about, you know, overinterpretation. Usually we're talking about poll results, but I don't know. What do you think? You know, I think I wasn't really, I wasn't so certain going into this that either side had like an obvious advantage in terms of mobilization. For me, you know, what I think about is who's voting for the status quo and who's voting for change. And ultimately, I mean, I think the thing that's kind of, and it's easy to kind of forget this in, in, in Texas where, you know, the, the legal landscape has changed dramatically and very quickly. But the point is because, you know, the, the Kansas constitution does guarantee the right to an abortion. The reality is, is that, you know, the Dobbs decision didn't change the, the landscape in Kansas the way it's changed the landscape in some other states. So to my mind, there was an argument you could make that actually the people voting yes, the people who ended up losing might actually have more energy behind them because ultimately they would actually be voting for the change. Whereas the people, you know, again, who ended up, you know, winning, uh, no, we're really just looking to maintain the status quo there. I think the fact that they so overwhelmingly maintained the status quo is I think, you know, obviously I don't think there's any reason Democrats should interpret that in any other way, other way than positively. But I think it also, there's two things about this. One, you know, I think the vote, you know, looks pretty similar to kind of where public opinion looks, at least on the broad edges, you yeah. know, I think. And I mean, certainly what it looks like in a conservative state like Texas, uh, you know, so there's that. But I've, you know, seen this to other people this morning, like, you know, ultimately the devil's in the detail and the devil's in the data here. Because really voting, you know, having a referendum on abortion access, it's probably going to look a lot like public opinion. That is not the same thing as two candidates running for election of, you know, where abortion is one issue among many issues. And so yeah. I think, you know, for Democrats, I think the question in the next coming days, and I think, you know, here in Texas, you know, you know, we have someone who regularly kind of analyzes, you know, the 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 turnout in these kinds of races. It'd be interesting to see what that looks like in Kansas, because for Democrats, what you want to, what I would want to know if, you know, you're sort of trying to interpret this realistically is, you know, did you turn out people that you didn't think you would turn out? Right. You know, in the counties where this really was over the top, you know, were you seeing, you know, people who never vote in primaries? You seen people who haven't voted in general elections? Because right. ultimately what that says, and, you know, and is there something about those people that's similar? Because that's where you say, is there a mobilization target for Democrats? You know, did yeah. did they see, you know, women under the age of the 30 turn out at much higher rates than they've seen? In, I mean, there's whatever it is. Right. That's really kind of the questions I think we need to get into before we start thinking about what this is. But ultimately, like everything else, it doesn't mean that Democrats are going to go and in every state where abortion is kind of central. They've got a 60-40 advantage. But what it might mean is that, you know, there's a couple points to be shaved here and there by, you know, finding voters right. who might not be engaged. And so I think that's that's the takeaway, not as exciting, but it's still certainly very interesting. And I don't think it was as obvious at the outset exactly what would happen there. Yeah. And, and I haven't looked this morning. Uh, some of the later late night reports before everything had been counted were suggesting that there were, you know, a lot of people that voted on this but did not vote in either of the primaries. Yeah. Right? And I, you know, in the six figures. Yeah. But I mean, but which this, makes sense. I mean, yeah. Well, and this is where I mean, you know, this is where I think one and of the, begs the question of who they were, as you were saying. Yeah. Know. And I think this is where, you know, this is sort of this whole, you know, big open question. Like, look, not the abortion issue is is very much going to affect this election cycle. 
how it's going to and how it's going to in different places still remains an open question. It's going to kind of depend on how the politics plays out, right? I mean, just just ultimately. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, had they said yes, let's say, I mean, had they or had the had the yes one, and then the question becomes, okay, what is Kansas going to do now, <laughs> right? Well, ultimately, that becomes part of the campaign. Yeah. And that becomes part of the issue set that people are valuing the candidates on. And maybe then that does make something different happen. But that's why I think the space is so dynamic right now. I'm just kind of, you know, I'm reluctant to read too much into anything. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's, you know, the careful analysis. I mean, I, you know, I think playing a little fast and loose. What I wonder is how much people will not wait for the analysis and begin to act on, you know, particularly on the Democratic side. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think there's going to be a lot of, see, I told you. Mm-hmm. This is good for us, and you know. Yeah, all, no, I mean, and it is. You can't say it's I mean, not good for us as a mobilization issue. Yeah, no, you can't you say know. it's not good for Democrats. But I mean, it would be very much like Democrats at this point to overinterpret this and you know right. turn something that you know is probably a marginal positive for them when, when taken into consideration of everything else. Yeah, and you know, making it into something that's you know maybe just neutral, <laughs> you know, right, potentially negative in some places, but we'll say. So, you know, in other states, you know, Arizona, Michigan, Missouri, you know, the kind of overarching national story there, you know, is, you know, the the catnip of what does this say about Donald Trump and his influence? Yeah. You know, and we, I, you know, I don't want us to get too far in down the rabbit hole on this. I mean, I think we have talked about it on here before. Uh, we're still waiting to get some final results in Arizona. Um, a couple of those races have been too close to call. If you're looking at this from a Trump-centric point of view, it was a mixed night. Yeah. You know, some of his candidates, you know, several of his candidates did well. Uh, we did see, you know, a couple more candidates go down on the congressional side uh, that were, you know, yes votes on his impeachment mm-hmm. that had been targeted. You know, we were talking before this, how much of this is about Trump? How much of this is about the broader, you know, currents that Trump has surfed? Yeah. And, the you know, the currents in public opinion and and within the Republican Party that Trump activated. I kind of want to put a pin in some of this. I mean, there's some of the funny anecdotal things where Trump, yeah, you know, Trump in, endorsed an Eric. Turns out the one he meant to endorse lost, but he was probably going to lose anyway yeah. in, uh, in Missouri. You know, the Eric Schmidt, Eric Greitens race yeah, there's for the, a third for the Eric Senate in there nomination. Too. But I mean, you know, this is just the, I mean, for me on this whole thing, I just, you know, it's like part of what I try I'm to- give, th- I'm inviting you to All bitch. right, I'm just going to jump in. I mean, like part of this- Just don't is, bitch for too long. No, I'll be, I'll, all right, let me <laughs> turn my watch. Here we go. Okay. I mean, there's a couple things. One, I think it would be dumb to deny that, you know, Trump's endorsement has an impact, right? I mean, ultimately he's the former president. He's well-liked within the Republican party, you know, pretty broadly here. And ultimately, in a in a primary election, which- Generally speaking, most voters are not going to have very well-formed opinion about a large number of candidates. Knowing that the former president endorses someone should have an impact, right? We should expect that. Right. Having said that, right, ultimately Trump is not making these picks in a vacuum. And the Trump-centric view of this, which is like, what does this say about Trump? I mean, ultimately, you know, you kind of, I mean, I think there's a couple of things. One, it's very easy to kind of go binary and say, well, did he win or did he lose? Right. But number one, he's not picking these candidates in a vacuum. He knows, you know, things about them. He knows what the, what the situation looks like. Ultimately, you know, I would expect Trump, like any politician who's going to engage in something like this, probably to shy towards giving more endorsements on sure things yeah. than on ones where he's really thinks, oh, you know, anybody could win this or even worse, this guy's probably not going to win. 
but maybe my endorsement can push you know him or her over. That's not really the way Trump plays. So ultimately, I yeah. think any sort of simple- Trump doesn't have a spreadsheet. No. <laughs> so one, that's kind of, I think a little, I think it's overdoing it, you know, just in and of itself because he's picking these, you know, these, he's strategically picking these candidates yeah. one way or another for the most part, right? The ones that he's not strategically picking or not as strategically picking, you know, when you're going up against someone who voted to impeach him, ultimately, again, Democrat, Republican, if you- make a vote to impeach the president of your party when most of the members in your party do not, you are putting a target on your back. Right. And I, and I think most of the people in that position, you know, sort of realize that to some extent. Now, the other subplot that intersects with this mm-hmm. is the DCCC's, you know, throwing money and ads behind pro-Trump candidates in primary races that they were hoping to help in order to help the Democratic candidate in the general election. So, Mm -hmm. you know, look, on one hand, we've seen this a lot. We've seen it in Texas where, you know, candidates, you know, the campaign organizations in both parties, they support a candidate in the primary that they think will be a weaker general election candidate come the general election in order to help their candidate in that election. But the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee has gotten some press for doing this. And in one of the races last night, at least, uh, in in Michigan, Congressional District 3, the candidate that they they supported was a a Trump candidate, a guy named Dobbs, who beat one of these candidates that had voted. Meyer, I think. Meyer, yeah, that had had voted um, for impeachment. There's been a lot of discussion that under the circumstances, this is a little different than the usual strategic move that grown-ups in politics expect to see. I'm curious, like, we haven't talked about this, and I'm, I'm very curious what you think about this, because I have kind of a view of it I think I've settled on. Yeah, I mean, let's see. I think it's it's stupid for Democrats to do this. I mean, to be honest, I think there's a couple problems with this, with this approach, just generally. I mean, first of all, I think it's kind of a classic overreaction from Democrats, right? I think, you know, to some extent, it's like, you know, Democrats, and this is part of this, are looking around saying, you know, there's all these threats to democracy going on. And there's these, you know, candidates who are proposing things that we find, you know, fundamentally very, very troubling. Right. And given the fact that, you know, they, you know, I think Democrats feel that Republicans are so comfortable with the idea of, of playing with the rules and all that kind of stuff. This is sort of feels to me like a classic Dem- Democratic overreaction, like, well, we need to fight fire with fire. And in so doing, though, you know, I think you're just creating a tons of problems for us. Now, number one, I mean, I think every Democrat who's been part of the, the January 6th hearings has kind of said, look, this is really bad optics. I mean, we're trying to sit here and say we're yeah. trying to raise above this and say, hey, look, the elections are the elections. You know, we need to we need yeah. to trust the results of these. But then to basically go in and do something where you're trying to, you know, basically tip the scale in an interparty primary, whether or not the other side does it doesn't look great. Two more things. Negative partisanship, which we talk about all the time. Yeah, I mean, Sure. Maybe you've 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 helped nominate a candidate who you know you think is unelectable, but ultimately, and this is something I say to people, and I'm not pointing out to anybody, but you know I think campaigns and and the parties, they are so used to terrible polling that they don't even know what it looks like. <laughs> and this is true on yeah. both sides. I mean, in terms of the sort of messages that they test yeah. and say, like, oh, look what we've learned now. And I think you know the idea that you know that that some of these people are are somehow disqualified. I think that might be true if you're like a Democratic strategist. I'm not sure if that's true if you're a Republican yeah. voter. And to me, that's where I think, you know, you're ultimately, you know, your Democrats are playing with fire here. I mean, they're promoting candidates who hold fundamentally and, you know, anti-democratic views in a lot of cases. 
or you know whose mere existence in Congress I think calls into question you know some some ways the you know the quality of the institution. But not you know I would say but for Democrats they wouldn't even have this opportunity. But like I think you don't even want to have that be a possible criticism you can yeah. face. And I think so I you know. I'm pretty one-sided on it. I think, you know, I yeah. think there's better ways to spend $400,000 and to support, uh, you know, a, you know what they think is an unelectable Republican. Yeah. Maybe, like, you know, on the, I think your Democrats candidates. judgments of what is an unelectable Republican has not been very good with with one very prominent example. Well, and exactly. And that's the point. <laughs> and that's in the same. Your connection to that is exactly right. I mean, the idea that, like, with I mean, remember how Trump the, having the Clinton paved campaign the wanted to run against Donald Trump. Yeah, exactly. Let's just- Exactly. What about you? I mean, I don't yeah, no, I, I came down the same. I mean, I, you know, I mean, you've done a lot of cleared the underbrush. I mean, I, you know, one, I think the risk reward proposition here is not there. Yeah. Particularly in this case. I mean, yeah. I guess when the stakes are lower, I don't love it as a strategy because of that, because there's too yeah. much uncertainty and there's, you know, it's campaign consultants, I think. And, you know, some of my, well, maybe not my best friends. Yeah. I have good friends in the consulting class anyway. Sure. I think it's a way, I mean, there's there's a certain dynamic yeah. that to me feels like a consulting going, hey, it's what my my wife calls, you know, hey, I got a good trick pony for you. Yeah. You know what? And trick ponies, well, and, 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 you know, tr they're trick ponies. They don't race well, right? So there's that. So I think the yeah. risk reward thing. And then, you know, the other thing that you're saying that I get in this case in particular, I hate to use the word, but, you know, it's ethically not right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's, and, and you're right, it's, I mean, part of it is optics, but sometimes optics and ethics align, and mm -hmm. this is one of them. The optics are bad, and the ethics are terrible. Yeah. Well, and especially, I say, you know, we're talking about democracy, but we're also sort of, you know, continually talking about information flows in society and disinformation and misinformation. And, you know, I think it really does, you know, hurt the Democrats' credibility, you know, when, let's say, talking about foreign influences in elections when, you know, you're basically spending this money to, to essentially create, you know, a misinformation. I mean, in some ways, a misinformation campaign about a candidate who you know is is probably, who you, at least at the very least, you know, who you very seriously think is unelectable. Right. And you're doing, and you're doing it not just because, and, and again, in this case, they're doing it not, be, not just because they think they're unelectable, but because they think they're wrong. Right. You know, wrong in, you know, not just the policy sense, but in the broader institutional ethical sense. And I think, yeah, I think it's a loser. And I, I, you know, another minor point in this, though, that is interesting in this is it's it's another interesting way. And I, you know, this is tactically a good thing. But again, in the broader sense of things, it's a terrible thing. Yeah, it's actually contributed to the January 6th committee's ability to continue functioning with at least some air of bipartisanship. Yeah. Because Republicans obviously have to say it's terrible and think it's terrible. Yeah. But it gives Democrats a chance to say, yeah, this is Yeah. I mean this is terrible. And and I think you have seen evidence of a divide between I mean, there's some divisions among members, but in reading all the this is completely impressionistic, but in reading the you know, the millions of inside newsletters that people mm -hmm. that that we get and the yeah. people that probably listen to this get the membership for the you know in, in congress for the most part particularly in the house where this is all this is happening the most you know are not down with this they don't yeah. like it no well i mean and anybody who knows anything about like you know institutional politics and and you know the relationships between right. elected officials in these bodies could just imagine right and and know. it's you know and it's an interesting source of tension between members and the campaign arm 
of the party. Right? Yeah, and well, we'll, and yeah. I think, you know, as you say, I think, you know, I tied even to the broader thing. I mean, a couple of weeks ago, we we're talking about, you know, we weren't, but I mean, people were talking about Gavin Newsom's ad in Texas and some other right. things really going after Greg Abbott. And, you know, regardless of the whys, he wants to run for president, et cetera. I mean, you know, there is this sort of clear desire among Democrats to to figure out how to go be more offensive. Right. You know, and, and, you know, Biden's gained a lot of criticism from Democrats about not, you know, going on the offense more, whatever that means. I'm just saying, like, you right. know, I read a lot of stuff. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but that's also part of it. I think because it's not, you know, for Democrats, they're not really sure what that means. At that point, you are seeing kind of these disparate kind of random, you know, not right. random, but, you know, it's say, you know, different efforts of higher and lower quality to kind of go on the offensive. And right, to be, yeah, and, you know, to, you know, to try, you know, I mean, and this is a good transition to try to drive the agenda and not just right. be reactive. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. And so, which does bring us, you know, and we'll talk, you know, just for a few minutes about this and we'll come back to it. And we're going to talk about this obviously yeah. <laughs> multiple times going forward, but there has been an interesting, you know, uh, amount of attention on the Texas governor's race yet again, from outside the state, as well as inside the mm -hmm. state. Um, Last couple of weeks, a couple of articles that have made manifest this ongoing discussion about just how competitive the governor's race is in Texas and why. And again, right. as I was, you know, as we were talking about this, you know, we've talked about this a lot. It's hard not to be at least a little repetitive, but I want to try to avoid that at least a little bit. But the race has gotten a bit of national attention after the last round of polling, including our last UT Texas Politics Project poll is finding what, you know, seems by consensus to be a, a single-digit race. Yeah. Right, I, you know, mid-single digits. And again, not news. But, uh, you know, I, I don't know if this happened to you. I, you know, and I know you, probably, you know, almost certainly got press calls on this. You know, in the last couple of weeks, there's been a couple of articles that have kind of made manifest this ongoing discussion about how competitive is this race? I mean, we've seen the polling. We know it's, mm -hmm. we know that it's, that it's competitive. We've had... A lot of polling, including our our polling in the last UT Texas Politics Project poll, you know, this shows this race in single digits. Mm -hmm. I feel like we reached a, you know, one of those, we had one of those little ticks in interest where everybody goes, oh, wow, what's going on in yeah. that Texas race? And does Better or Work have a chance? I think, you know, the trigger nationally for this, I think, was a New York Times article by Houston-based correspondent David Goodman. There was also an op-ed uh, a little after the Goodman article by Mark Jones of the Baker Institute uh, in the San Antonio Express News, you know, both of which in different ways unpacked the various conditions that seem to be making this race more competitive, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, you know, the elements of that, you know, we've laid out in here a lot and I think are, are pretty, you know, the, the school shootings in Uvalde. The revival of you know the abortion politics in the wake of Dobbs and what the Texas what, what things look like in Texas the grid the grid and you know the grid is a weird one because you know we haven't had more problems with the grid or at least catastrophic problems since Fed, since the storm in February of 2021 but the relentlessly hot weather has had everybody on their toes, including ERCOT issuing right. conservation warnings. Regular regular conservation alerts. Now, you know, this is all pretty speculative at this point. And I, I don't want to go too far with this because well, but one of the things that's very funny in both of those, in both Mark Jones' piece and David Goodman's piece, is that there's a long explication of all these things that are making the race more yeah. competitive and is making things you know, like drawing people's attention and, and making people, you know, consider whether maybe, just mm -hmm. maybe 
uh, or work could pull this out. Yet both of those pieces go on at decent length, and then about you know the second or third graph before the end have a but still paragraph. Yeah, <laughs> that kind of says, "Hey, and just to be clear, you know." I mean, you know, Mark Jones thing was an op-ed, so yeah. it was a little more direct in saying, you know, look, Abbott is still probably going to win this race. Yeah. Right? And and David Goodman did a thing where he kind of, it was artfully done, it kind of pivoted by suggesting with man-in-the-street interviews that people were still kind of thinking about the economy yeah. or not thinking about this at all. Yeah. Right? I mean, I think you had a guy eating an ice cream or something going, yeah, I don't know, things are pretty good here. <laughs> you know, I, I did interview this morning on this topic, more or less, and, and you know, kind of ended with... You know, it's like, well, but like, wouldn't you still say it's like, you know, the Republicans race to lose? And my answer is, of course. Yeah. Because you know what? They haven't lost a race here in 20 years. So ultimately, even if the state is getting more competitive until a Democrat can win at the top of the ticket, it's still all it's, it is a Repu it is all the Republicans races to lose at this point because there's no indication otherwise. I mean, I think one of the interesting things about all these stories about how the race is tightening and sort of the causality that people are putting to it is like, you know, the race was polling four or five points before Uvalde and before right. the Dobbs decision. And so what I'm thinking about more broadly is, you know, I think people, you know, it's it's natural to want to see patterns, right? We're humans, right? It's yeah. natural to want to, you know, draw trend lines through things. We all we all do it, right? But there's an aspect that I'm kind of looking at right now and saying, well, okay, you know, is the four to six point lead that Abbott's maintaining right now? I mean, to, to some extent, there's a question I think that people should be asking themselves, which is, has this already incorporated all of that? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, the, you know, we had a, a year-long legislative session in which we were talking about voting rights, we were talking about abortion, we were talking about critical race theory. You know, we were we were talking about these issues, right? Abbott being up five, you know, ultimately looks like the trend line that we've been on, right? Where, you know, Abbott- At the top of the ballot. At the top of the ballot, going from, you know, by winning by about 20 to about 12. And then we're seeing people winning by, you know, between two and a half and six. And now you see most of the statewide candidates at between four and six points. You know- Dan Patrick only beat Mike Collier last time by 4.8 points. So the right. fact that he's polling at about five is like, that's about where he was. So to some extent, you know, I think what, what these articles are, they're not doing it entirely, but I mean, some of it, I don't I, I would say, you know, Mark, I wouldn't say at all is doing this. I think he's just kind of laying out facts on the ground and I'm yeah. not, and I, I wasn't, I didn't read the New York times article as closely, but there is a sort of general sense of like this projection. It's like, well, things have been going bad and therefore that's why the race is tight and if that's why the race is tight, maybe it's going to get tighter. Maybe it's going to flip. Right. You know, I mean, it could get tighter and, and Abbott could win by two points. Right. Right. It, you know, or, you know, what we might see is what we often do, which is, you know, polling in the summer before an election tends to be a little bit more democratically skewed. It's a broader electorate than we see in a midterm. Yeah. Now. Technically speaking, you know, even though, and we'll bracket, a, actually Mark's poll for U of H, but your Mark is part of that team. Yeah. But we're still polling registered voters. Yeah, we're still polling registered voters. And, and if you're doing a likely voter screen, you know, artistic, stylistic preference here, I think, although a justifiable one on our part, you know, it's a little soon to be talking about likely voters in my view. Well, and, well and I would say also further than that, I mean, I'll just say what we don't know at this point. We really don't know how mobilizing the Dobbs decision is going to be. Right. And that's why the Kansas, that, you know, that's, that's why what, we started with the Kansas yeah. thing today. Be, and that's why everybody's starting with the Kansas right. thing. Because it speaks to like one of the most, you know, underdetermined but provocative and, and major kind of, you know, disruptions. And by the way, you know, Mark used the term exogenous shock oh. in that article. I sent it to Ross. Yeah. Ross Ramsey. Yeah. And for those of you who've been on this podcast, I think we actually joked about this when we had Ross on the podcast uh -huh. to talk about the poll a few weeks ago. 
you know, he just, I sent him Mark's article and said, hey, see the last article where he uses the term exogenous shock. And Ross, is, he sent me a one line response, just said, what's wrong with you people? <laughs> so, Lord knows. Yeah, yeah. Big question. I, I don't know. You know, I mean, to continue on your point, I mean, I think one thing that's sort of occurring to me that I hadn't really thought about that much or I thought about, but not in this way, which is that, you know, one of the things that's interesting about looking at those top of the ballot numbers mm-hmm. and all those races you were talking about were last time you know the patrick race was close the paxton race was close 2018 we had the very close um uh aurora cruz race but that year abbott still won by 14 yeah against i know against a very weak underfunded candidate Mm -hmm. but one of the things that's interesting about this is that as we're looking at those trend lines i mean the story here may not is not necessarily you know, it's all gone to hell for the Republicans and they're going to lose the governorship. But there is something to be said that, you know, it may be that Governor Abbott, given the kind of conditions we're talking about in a, you know, the things that have been going on in the ground, may be getting dragged into where the rest of the ballot yeah, was. He's he's lost his cushion. I mean, yeah. I think that's pretty clear. I mean, there's not a distinction between, you know, Ab- I mean, look, there's a distinction within, you know, again, when you're looking at individual evaluations, there's certainly a, just a, a gap between Abbott and everybody else, but he's also just much more well-known than everybody well, he's else. The so, so he's the I governor. Mean, so that's fine. I mean, I just want to be clear about what we're saying. Don't well, tell the lieutenant governor I said that, but. Well, I'm going to bring the, electro- the, the lieutenant governor into this for a second. But I think, you know, when you're watching campaigns, I mean, what I always think is, and I just said, you know, I don't trust campaign polling, um, but I know that the, the, the people, you know, running the campaign do. And ultimately, you know, their actions reflect what they think the, you know, the, the conditions right. on the ground look like. And I think it's notable that, you know, Dan Patrick has already started name checking Mike Collier in the summer, which is, you know, I think, you know, if anybody sort of follows campaigns regularly, if you're an incumbent politician who feels pretty comfortable about your changes, you don't mention your challenger by name ever. Right. There's no point in doing that. He's already, you know, name checking Mike Collier, which I think to me says, you know, that the five point races that we're kind of polling that we're seeing everywhere is probably not far off what they're seeing. What they're seeing, yeah. And then I would also add to that the fact that, you know, if Abbott were sitting pretty, he wouldn't have made such a big ad buy, you know, so far out in the fall, other than the fact that he's going to be competing for airtime and he's going to be wanting to put out a message that he's going to be spending a bunch of money on. And so, again, that's not, and again, I think that there's part of you say, like, well, you know, of course he's going to do that. That's fine. It's like, yeah, maybe he didn't have to against Lupe Valdez and he spent a bunch of that money on down ballot Republican candidates. He helped Ted Cruz right. out, he did a lot of other stuff. And ultimately, I mean, one of the other side effects of all this, again, I think Republicans are in a pretty safe place at the top of the ballot and certainly down ballot. But to some extent, you know, you can already see that Abbott's looking out for himself very clearly. Although I know. think it is, it is, you know, and I don't I don't know the answer to this. I and I don't remember impressionistically, mm. but I seem to remember the governor doing a pretty big ad buy early last time. And people kind of going, well, why is he doing that? But, you know, I mean, I think that the explanation then was that, you know, they are risk averse. They were not going to, you know, they we, were not, so we'll have to go back. We have to go that. back. I was going to say, you know, my recollection was that that was much more targeted ad by him. Mean, I remember in the Lupe Valdez campaign, I mean, I remember that one of the first kickoff events was sort of the, you know, Hispanics for Greg Abbott. Kind yeah. of. So, I mean, they were very much looking to do something specific there, I think, whereas this is, I mean, this ad by is very, is big and broad. Although, you know, but they also, look. but they also tried to do that in 2014. Yeah. Where they did another initial expansion, but then it got kind of scotched by what was going on on the lieutenant governor's race when Dan Patrick first ran, mm-hmm. and it was a race to the right. Yeah, and the rhetoric on that side kind of just, you know, obstructed that strategy. I think for the for the Abbott campaign. But I mean, I guess the, I mean, I guess the point I would make here is, you know, I mean, just to wrap this up in some sense, you know, I think if you're a, an incumbent politician and you can go to the voters and say. Look how great everything's going. 
why would you want to make a change? Then you don't mention the other guy. Yeah. No, I think. And I think what, and what you're clearly seeing, you know, that's not, you know, that's not the race that we're having right now. Yeah. And I think that in and of itself is just a, it's just, I mean, look, that's just a fundamentally different race. I mean, I think, you know, you know, that that's fundamentally something different than what we've seen recently. Well, 2018 was a fundamental, you know, pretty different context for all these Yeah, things. I'm going to lose. I mean, 2018 yeah. was its own, was its own thing. But I think, you know, when people think about Texas and what's interesting, I mean, I think, you know, if you were to go back over the last few election cycles, you'd say, you know, for Republicans, these are mobilization elections. Get, if you get your voters out, you're going to win the race. You don't need to acknowledge the Democrats. And you basically just need to say, hey, thank God we're not run like Washington. Thank God Texas has run right. like this. That argument lot tougher to make. And I think you are yeah. seeing, you know, an indication that that both sides are looking that they, they probably need to do some persuading. And not only is it tougher to make, not just than it was in 2018, it's tougher to make than it was six months ago. Yes. <laughs> well, and that's, and that's, I think, and that, that's, I think that's, a re- and that's a, you know, and that's what, and that's what's, that's one of the things that makes this very interesting and, and dynamic. I mean, yeah. honestly, right. You know, right. I mean, in terms of mechanics, I mean, there's a matter, you know, you're talking about mobilization. I mean, who has a mobilization advantage right now? I mean, I, I still give it to the Republicans, I think, but that's why the abortion piece is so interesting. Now, they start from a higher baseline, but if you look at the, you know, if you look at the buckets of voters, mm-hmm. and, you know, I sort of did this on an informal mailing list yeah. I'm with and then felt kind of stupid because I hadn't put enough of this contextual information in it. Yeah. But at some level, it does feed into this, right? If you're, you know, if you're the candidates, you know, you're, mo- you know, base mobilization. Yep. Right. And so you've got Republicans with a well-oiled machine and a seemingly a seeming advantage there, both in terms of party identification and what we expect the electorate to be. Yeah. Asterisk, you know, but still not a big asterisk. Right. No. Not a big you know, then you've got some body of persuadable partisans, which are polling shows is pretty small when it comes to candidate races. Right. This is where, you know, the whole point about, you know, the difference between a referendum on abortion and a partisan vote for a candidate is really a big question. Right. You know, I think in our last poll, you know, the number of partisan defections was low single digits in each party. Yeah. Kind of canceled each other out. Mm -hmm. You know, seems to be to be trivial within the margin of error probably. And then you've got, you know, some thing of weak partisans or independents. Yeah. Right. And if you, you know, you take our estimates and independents are between 10 and 14 percent of our samples, more than 40 percent of them were not committed to either O'Rourke or Abbott in our last poll. Some, some, and only some subset of those people will vote. Right. And then a smaller set of them will vote. A, the math adds up to the, to the close race that we're seeing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Right. And it also, you know, raises sort of a, you know, a lot of, I think, not clearly answerable questions about how the campaigns proceed in this environment. Mm-hmm. And I think that is where you're seeing a little bit of drag on the Abbott campaign. Because I think the path for that for Democrats, ironically, is a little more clear than the path is for Republicans, other than hoping that you can revert to the playbook before this all, before, you know, yeah, the mean, bad 2022 started to unfold with Uvalde well, and, I, well, and, your seat, I mean, and I think, abortion and, you know. You know, there's articles out, I mean, we'll get out of this soon and I'll, I'll just say two things. I mean, you know, there, you know, and that's why we hear about immigration and the border all the time, right? Well, I mean, there, right. there are articles out, you know, I think the Tribune did a pretty good job going into depth about the state's sort of juvenile justice system and how it's, right. you know, as I think their word is collapsing, sounds like it's collapsing. And, you know, and sort of responding to this, you know, the response was, you know, well, open borders fentanyl. And it's like, okay, right. Got it. 
But, you know, I mean, so, I mean, there is there, I mean, we know what, I mean, I think the playbook is very clear and I think there's, there's advantages to it. But one thing I'll add to your, you know, what you were saying about, you know, the mobilization piece, Democrats are running the same ticket they ran in 2018 at the very top, you know, in some ways, right? I mean, it's not exactly, I mean, not for governor and, and lieutenant right. governor, but, you know, one of the things that, that, you know, you can say, you know, better O'Rourke has is he's got lists. Yeah. He has lists of Democratic voters. He has lists of people who've worked on his campaign before. And he's it, done it before. And even, my, and you know what? Mike Collier has lists and has done it before and has done it before. And so, you know, even though I definitely certainly give the <laughs> so inst- for doing the same thing, everyone else did. <laughs> well, even though, well, no, I, even though I still give the institutional advantage to Republicans because again, they've demonstrated because an ability to win it. and they've, and they have it. <laughs> but that's also to say, you know, this isn't uh, a situation where a new candidate is showing up and is kind of figuring out the ropes yeah, right. on the road. I mean, we've been saying it's odd, you know, in prior podcasts, we said it's odd that O'Rourke waited so long to get in the race, even though it was a normal time to get into the race, but he could have done it earlier for other reasons. But, you know, the fact that like in the summer before the, you know, quote unquote official campaign, as we think begins yeah. in the fall, the fact that, you know, he's on a 49, you know, day tour with, you know, 60 stops is because, you know, like he's done this before. Yeah. And that makes a difference. I and, mean, you know, I don't want to over, you know, and he can. And he can, you know. So, and I think that's also a, an interesting factor here. Yeah, and so again, I don't think that that's that's I don't think that's determinative. But when you're looking at all these factors and saying, boy, you know, do we think this is going to be you know a close race, or do we think you know you know it's going we're going to come out on election day and you know the Republicans are all going to be pretty comfortable? And again, we're not even talking about Ken Paxton. We'll just leave that alone. Right. You know, you say, yeah, you know, I think there's a lot of reasons to think this race might be tighter because honestly, the issues that are probably you know at least some of the most mobilizing you know for Democrats and I think even for some of these independents who you know if if you were going to say how might they break Democratic, they're the issues that Abbott does not want to talk right. about. I mean, this goes back to what we've talked about on here before about you know a lot campaigns as sort of you know fights over what is going to be at the forefront of the agenda of the campaign discussion, which right. are trying and you know what you're really doing is trying to push issues in front of the voters Yeah, as you get close to the election. And we've said, you know, ad infinitum, you know, immigration and border security, great Republican unifier, et cetera, et cetera. But it is really striking given that things are, you know, when we do get reporting there, things are not great at the border. No. And, and they're not great in a lot of ways that you that a Republican candidate should be able to make hay of yeah. with a Democrat in the White House. Right. But the constant drip Drip, drip of open border. Bad. Well, on the other, oh, on, on the other a side, bad news in the wake of the Uvalde shooting mm-hmm. has really just soaked up a lot of bandwidth. You know, atten- you know, in terms of what a colleague would call the politics of attention. Yeah, I mean, it's really striking. Just you know, I was making a list and getting ready for this. The number yeah. of things, you know, some of which you know are not totally surprising, but still a little surprising that have come out in the aftermath of Uvalde. It's just they've just you know, they would never say this, and I don't blame them, and I'm not, you know, casting aspersions on this, but the Abbott campaign really needs that issue to recede. Yeah. And I and the issue, and I think what has happened is that the issue is that this has not really been about guns. They've done a good job, as we talked about yeah. on the last podcast, of obscuring right. the gun issue, at least at the state level, yeah. in terms of the, you know, the, the legislative report. But the kind of news that's come out of there has not been about guns. It's been about poor delivery of support to people in Uvalde. Yeah. It's been about blame casting. It's been about the lack of clarity on what actually happened still. Yeah. It's been about the constant appearance of blame casting among different entities. 
and just not been able to move beyond it. Well, and I'd also say, you know, in the in the in the sort of shifting of attention, it doesn't really help either because it's like, well, it's not about guns; it's about the fact that these schools aren't safe. It's yeah. like, oh, you mean the schools in Texas that the state government right. is responsible for? I mean, like, it's just you kind of go one step down the line and you say, oh, well, that's a little bit of right. that's a little difficult. And that, and that, in a way, is why it it has rebounded to the O'Rourke campaign strategy announced on the telegraph from the very first day mm -hmm. with different issue priority, mm -hmm. but that, you know, this is a critique of the stewardship of the state yeah, by the party that's been in control for 20 years and a governor running for a third term. And it's, you know, it, you know, you mentioned all these other issues that I think are, you know, have historically been less salient. Yeah. You know, child, you know, CPS, mm -hmm. you know, all of these other issues that are bubbling out there that are traditional democratic issues that don't get much traction. Right. Now, all of a sudden, there's something that's a little more additive about it, potentially, I think. And that, and I think that is out there in the mood. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, that was, you know, that's kind of, I mean, that's like, that's kind of what I said three months ago. Like, you know, these things could add up. And this was before, you know, we knew that the Supreme Court was probably going to come down with a decision yeah. like this, regardless if they did or not. Texas still passed further abortion restrictions. Fact is, is there was going to be a mass shooting in Texas at some point because Texas yeah. is a big place with a lot of guns and the legislature made it easier to own guns. The thing that I think, you know, I, I also just kind of would put out there as sort of just, you know, watching is, you know, in terms of the drip, drip, drip of, you know, you talk about, you know, sort of the, the aftermath of Uvalde, but there's also this, you know, the drip, drip, drip about, you know, Joe Biden's open borders. It's like, I just wonder if at some point, you know, that loses some of its power because the reality is the state is spending so much money yeah. on border security. I mean, ultimately the question might be, why hasn't this gotten any better? Yeah. Right. And so ultimately, you know, you, at some point there is a sort of, you know, aspect to it, to it, which is like, well, you know, if you keep complaining about it and keep talking about it and keep pointing the finger, but at the same time, you know, you're taking money from, you know, taking money from child protective services and you're taking money from, you know, all these yeah. different parts of government and the price tag just keeps going up and up and up. Something that, you know, again, we pointed out at the end of the session, Republicans were very proud to tout, but at some point, like, you know, do you own some of this, the border yeah. crisis? I mean, and it's, and it's been a problem. It's been a problem for the, for the Abbott administration since they really started this mm -hmm. increased spending on the border several years ago. Right. Right, in which, you know, now it didn't get much attention then because it happened in the legislature and people were like, well, what are we getting for this beyond more traffic tickets in the border region? Mm -hmm. You know, if this race stays close, I mean, uh, you know, it, it makes me wonder if this doesn't become, you know, the, that the, you know, the kind of moment of truth doesn't come in the closing weeks of the campaign. Mm -hmm. Can Beto O'Rourke thread a needle that says Democrats believe in border security too? Yeah. You have spent by that time it'll be probably four billion dollars or whatever. I think it's already over four billion. Yeah, right. Yeah, because they just added more, or they found that they were transferring <laughs> right. more. They spent more. You know what have Texans gotten for this? And the Abbott team will be anticipating that question. Yeah, sure. What will be the answer to that? Because yeah. I think you know, as you said, you know, the answer so far has been well. What he expects us to do, you know, it's the Biden administration's fault. At some point. You know, and I maybe we talked about this on air. Now I can't remember. Will there be a, you know, some kind of messaging from the O'Rourke campaign that says, you know, why does Greg Abbott blame Joe Biden for all his mistakes? Yeah, well, and I think you know, as I think Harvey pointed out, Harvey Kronberg pointed out recently in a, you know some Quorum Report thing that he wrote a couple of weeks ago. You know, there's a lot of audio that they could use. Yeah, 
And that's the thing. And the audio is piling up on some of this stuff. On both, you know, I think the border piece, but then also on this cumulative piece, you know, on each of these sorts of elements. And so, you know, so again, having said all that, you know, Abbott's probably going to win. Just to to come back to this. Right. Just to get to the second and the last paragraph. Yeah. But I mean, I think, you know, but overall, I think this is this is why it's interesting. You know, again, I'm not sure, honestly, that this isn't already all reflected in the polling. Yeah. To be honest. And I don't and I'm not. And I think also based on the way that, you know, the, the differences between the registered voter pool and what turns out to be the actual electorate uh, tends to favor, you know, Republicans a little more. You know, if that's the case, maybe, you know, Abbott ends up winning by six or seven points and is relatively comfortable. But I think, you know, the thing that's interesting is, you know, they're, you know, it's an uphill battle, you know, for Democrats, but, you know, they've, they've, they've got a little bit more wind in their back than I think, you know, I think we would anybody expected. certainly than anybody expected. I agree. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and that is what's driving some of this coverage. With that, I think I'm going to flag one more thing before signing off. And that is, you know, this is almost foreshadowing. You know, we talked about John Cornyn's position in the podcast a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Cornyn, you know, basically censored censured by the Collin County Republican Party this week in yet another bad break for, for John Cornyn, which really kind of raises issues about what is going on inside the Republican Party. We'll put a pin in that for next week or the week after. On that, I want to thank Josh for being here. Thank our excellent crew here in the audio studio in the liberal arts development studio at the University of Texas at Austin because I knocked the mic off the stand a couple of times thrashing around. So thank you guys for the extra help. Uh, Thank you for listening and we'll be back soon with another second reading podcast. Be sure and look for data supporting material and other goodies at our website, the Texas Politics Project. That's texaspolitics.utexas.edu. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin.